when you're held against your will, you're a prisoner. Uh, was I a criminal? No. Was I a spy? <laughs> if I'd have been a spy, I would have been home in two weeks. So I was a political pawn. I was a political prisoner. I was detained and they were using me to extort something from the U.S. government. This is Convicted Across Borders, a podcast co-produced by Focus Features and L.A. Times Studios brand team and funded by Focus Features in support of the film Stillwater. I'm your host, Marsha Clark. I've spent decades as a prosecutor and a defense attorney in the United States, but each year, more than 3,000 Americans are imprisoned outside the United States. Many are wrongfully convicted, and many are told they will never return home. Imagine what you would do in that horrific situation. Who could you count on to come to your rescue? In this five-part series, we're hearing real-life, first-hand accounts of American citizens whose international journeys turned into epic nightmares. For Alan Gross, Cuba was on his bucket list. He was no stranger to travel. Over the decades, he'd worked in more than 50 countries in his career. For his wife, Judy, and their two daughters, it's how it had always been. So Alan jumped at the opportunity to go to Cuba when a project presented itself, helping connect communities to the Internet. But this would not be like all the other trips he'd done. In December 2009, he was arrested by Cuban authorities and accused of trying to set up illegal Internet connections. Fourteen months later, Allen was found guilty and sentenced to 15 years in prison for crimes against the Cuban state. This is Allen's story. My name is Alan Gross. I'm 72 years old. I live in Tel Aviv and in Washington, D.C. I split my time between the two. If I had to describe myself to someone, I'd probably tell them that uh, I'm just a humble guy with a good sense of humor. He's a real shit, actually. No, I'm just... <laughs> I hope that some of this gets edited. That is Alan's wife. My name is Judy Gross, and I am from Washington, D.C. I've been in this area almost my entire life. We've been married 50 years and um, been through a lot together and separately. Alan is one of the strongest people I know, strongest emotionally. Very witty, very smart, very quick. He likes everyone around him to be happy. He's kind of a caretaking kind of guy. For decades, Alan and his good sense of humor traveled all over the world, working in 54 countries as a consultant and subcontractor for private companies and government agencies focused on economic development in emerging markets. The last 10 years of my career, I focused a little bit more on technology, finding ways to help people compete in today's marketplace by creating a level playing field within their country. One country that Alan had always wanted to go to, but never had the opportunity to before, was Cuba. 
I always heard so many wonderful things about Cuba, how it's a beautiful island and the Cubanos are wonderful people and the cigars are great and the rum is great and uh, the beaches are great and everything is great. It would be several years until Allen was approached by a contractor in November 2008 to set up a pilot project in Cuba with a private group to connect them to the Internet. Allen sent in his proposal, and after some back and forth, was approved for the project by the contractor and by the USAID, the United States Agency for International Development. The project required Allen to travel back and forth to Cuba over the next year. Each time he arrived in Cuba, he underwent two inspections, one by security and one by customs. Every piece of equipment and all of his documents were thoroughly checked, and then he'd be on his way. What Allen was not aware of was that Cuba had a law specifically prohibiting the distribution of anything in the country that's funded in full or in part by the U.S. government. So I was breaking that law. I didn't even know that law existed. Allen heard some Canadians had been arrested and deported after bringing some computer equipment into Cuba. I didn't feel that I was personally in danger. I was just starting to feel more and more uncomfortable. And I began to realize that things were not really as they appeared to be. Allen became more aware of little things people would say while he was working in the community, that Cuba was a tough place to live that he shouldn't joke around with soldiers or anyone in the government, that Cuba was not what he thinks it is. Judy had her fears as well. On December 3rd, 2009, all of those warnings and growing fears became a startling reality. It was a Thursday night of the last trip. I packed my clothes, I packed my bags, I took a shower and I got into bed and I went to sleep. And around 10 o'clock, I hear, because I was getting up early in the morning, 10 o'clock, I hear bang, bang, bang on the door. And it woke me up. I said, what the heck is going on? Who's banging at my door? And I look through the peephole, and I see these three gigantic guys in civilian clothes on the other side of the door. And one of them says, open the door or I break it down. I said, okay, okay. You know, I... I uh, put on a pair of shorts, and they came in. And they said, get your things, you're coming with us. Who was I to argue? I, I had no clue. I had no way to prepare for any such thing that never happened to me before. I've never been in trouble with the law anywhere in the world. And all of a sudden, I'm arrested. They didn't show me a, a badge. They didn't show me any ID. But it was very clear to me, whoever they were, I had to go with them. <laughs> if the ordeal wasn't strange enough, as Allen was being escorted out of the hotel lobby by authorities, he was stopped by the clerk at the front desk. It was a government-owned hotel, so I paid the bill, and then they took me away. They put me in this car. I'm, there were two guys in the front and three of us in the back, and I'm jammed in between these two big guys, and we go on a quasi-high-speed tour of Havana at night. Alan thought, like the Canadians he'd heard about, that he was going to be thrown on a plane and told not to return. Instead, he was taken to Via Marista, a notorious political prison. They took my stuff, said, you're going to have to see this doctor. 
and he took my blood pressure. He wasn't really a doctor. I don't, I don't know who he was. He takes my blood pressure and he says, uh, your blood pressure is very high here. And he reaches in his jeans and he pulls out a pill. He said, you're going to have to take this pill. I said, you take it. I'm not taking the pill you pulled out of your pocket. What are you, nuts? And he says, you have to take the pill. I said, you take the pill. And he says, just a minute. He, one of the interpreters comes in. He says, uh, you're going to have to take the spill. And then the jefe comes in, the chief. And he was actually making a very compelling argument. He said, Alan, you really need to take the pill. He said, it's not going to harm you at all in any way. If you don't have high blood pressure, as you suspect, it's not going to affect you at all. But if you do have high blood pressure and you don't take the pill and you have a stroke, I'm going to be in a lot of trouble. So I said, all right, give me the pill. So I go to take the pill and he gives me a juice box. He said, here, drink this. <laughs> and uh, I was pretty uncomfortable at that point. They confiscated everything that I had. And they took me from Via Marista to the Carlos J. Finley Military Hospital campus. And they put me into the prison ward in this facility. And I ended up staying there for, for quite a while. <laughs> Back at home, Judy was waiting for Alan to arrive in time for their Friday Shabbat dinner. At first, she thought maybe his flight was delayed. When she learned Alan's flight had arrived, but he wasn't on the plane... She began to worry. Something wasn't right. She looked on the State Department's website for an emergency number in Cuba. I said, I think my husband is either in the hospital or in jail. I mean, those were the two things that I thought. Check the emergency rooms and check the prisons. I explained to the guard what had happened. I remember that. He was really a nice man. And he got back to me I think within an hour. Now it's about one or two in the morning we're talking about. And he had no other details except that he he did know he was arrested. So my the fear had come true, and I didn't know what else to do, so I went to bed and figured in the morning I would start things rolling. It would be four or five days after Alan was first arrested before he was allowed to make one two-minute phone call to Judy. Judy was in the middle of a media interview about Alan's situation and almost didn't answer the phone. I told him we were doing a lot of work and not to worry because we uh, weren't sitting on this at all. This was a full-time job to get you back. And that's usually what made him calm down. Every time I would talk to him and I'd say, we're doing... We're working with so-and-so and so-and-so, and we're doing everything we can. I think he really needed to hear that assurance that we hadn't forgot about him or that we weren't going to get lax. We were fighting hard. I was very concerned about her. I was very concerned about my family and friends. Oh, my God, they must be going through all kinds of hell. And the one thing that the chief interrogator said to me that, I thought was truthful was that don't worry about them. They have a better support system than you do. And at first, I think he was saying it to try to razz me, but it was profound. I mean, it was absolutely true that my wife and family had a better support system than I did. 
Judy was doing everything she could to build a support system from the ground up to get Alan freed. I'm basically that kind of person where I just do what I have to do. The attorney and I started making dates to visit the State Department. Lots of people on the Hill tried to go to the Cuban intersection in Washington. I mean, we just started meeting people, talking to people, getting a direction of where we should go at the time. For the first year, Alan faced interrogations almost daily. I, um, I don't want to make light of any of this stuff. It was not a fun time. But I actually looked forward to the interrogations because it broke the monotony. The first year of detention was a year of sensory deprivation. There was no television, no books, no magazines. I was not allowed to have paper and pencil. There was nothing to stimulate my mind. So I had to try to figure out ways to keep busy. And I started exercising immediately, but what kept my mind occupied was trying to figure out how I could keep track of walking five miles a day in a cell, in a circle. So the most exciting part of the day was when I was going to be taken for interrogation, and I looked forward to it. And I tried to keep a good sense of humor. I tried to find something to laugh at every day. And most of the time, I was laughing at my captors because I knew it razzed them. And uh, I, I tried to make it as difficult emotionally for them as it was for me. Allen was detained for 14 months before charges were ever presented against him. I had nothing to hide. I didn't, I never did anything. They said I was running a covert operation. Bull hockey. I had this two-day trial. It was a sham trial. It was a circus. It was ridiculous. I'd already been held for 14 months, and they made such a big deal out of getting me two suits. They sent a tailor to where I was being held, to my prison cell. I'd already started losing weight. I, I mean, I lost, I lost a total of 110 pounds. Uh, but this was before I started having my teeth break off. And so um, they dressed me up and they put me on this hard bench killing my back for two days. The prosecution had 23 witnesses. I knew maybe five of them. The other people described me as Jack the Ripper. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was a nightmare, you know? I'm laughing about it now, but at the time, it was surreal. It was surreal what they were saying. I said, who are they talking about? And they were talking about me. That's absolutely ridiculous. It was a joke, except at that point I wasn't laughing. For Judy, it all became too much. He looked really gaunt, kind of hunched over. I just had had it. I needed a break, so I left the courtroom, and I went outside, sat down on a step, and just started to cry. Two weeks after the trial ended, Allen received his sentence. After being in prison for a year and two months, Allen was sentenced to 15 years. After being in prison for a year and two months, they sentenced me to 15 years. So uh, I wasn't really thrilled about that. But they said, well, we were being you know, easy on you because we could have sentenced you to 18 years. That's what the prosecutor wanted. 
I was about 60 years old at the time. And uh, my goodness, <laughs> you know, I would have already been eligible for parole <laughs> by, by now. But I, I just didn't uh, want to think about it. I never thought I would serve the whole term. I always knew that I'd come home. Always, always. But after two weeks, <laughs> and the cavalry didn't come <laughs> to save me, I knew I was going to be there for the long haul. While imprisoned in Cuba, Alan trusted his wife Judy would do everything to get him freed. Here is Stillwater star Matt Damon on his character's fight for his daughter's freedom. For one, he, he believes she's innocent. He doesn't want to give up on her. And, and the other thing is he's carrying all this guilt and shame for not having been there for her in the past. She doesn't have anyone else to be there for her. And he wants so badly to, to do something wonderful for her and to earn her trust again and her forgiveness. You see him make some bad decisions and he's just, he's just in over his head. See the Focus Features film, Stillwater, directed by Tom McCarthy and starring Matt Damon, only in theaters July 30th. Now, back to Alan's story. For five years, Alan was kept in isolation. He could only speak and understand a little bit of Spanish, but he and his cellmates were able to make do. I usually had two other cellmates. They were always Cuban. And usually one of the two had some English. And between my Spanglish and his Spanglish and, and the other guy, we, we communicated fine. We didn't have any trouble communicating. So there were three prisoners in the cell. And we were in isolation. We spent initially 24 hours a day in the cell. They would bring us our food in the cell not just for the first two weeks, this is the whole five years. Not walking in circles for two weeks, but the first year, but the whole five years. And so eventually they let us go out into uh, a courtyard with high walls for 45 minutes to an hour. But the rest of the time was spent in the cell. We were in isolation. There was no general population. To maintain his sanity and manage the loneliness, Alan hung on to his goal from the beginning, find something funny on a daily basis. When I saw something that was funny, I would laugh and my cellmates would say, hey, que pasa, you know, what's so funny? And I'd explain it to them and they'd start laughing. And then they would find things that were funny and I'd laugh at them, at what they found to be funny. It was the best we could do under the circumstances to keep a positive outlook and not succumb to despair. Alan would have visitors from time to time, mostly dignitaries, members of Congress or the clergy. But at best, all it meant was that the Cuban government would put on a show of better conditions in the prison by giving Alan a box of decent cigars. Judy, however, was only able to visit once every seven months. It was very difficult. You know, as much as I looked forward to seeing Judy, it's not like we could pick up where we left off. You know, a lot was happening on her end. She was busy as hell. And she, unfortunately, couldn't tell me everything. She could only give me nuances because we were under complete video and audio surveillance. That was very frustrating. At the time, the State Department didn't have a clue on how to handle the situation. 
And it's not like I'm unique. This very day, there are 53, plus or minus 53 U.S. citizens being unjustly held around the world. 53, probably more. It's a terrible, terrible problem. Allen's 15-year sentence was appealed, and a few months later, Allen was given back his suit. It was too big because he'd lost more weight, and once again, the court's decision and his sentence was upheld. I wasn't depressed about that. I'd already been there a long time, and I knew it was going to be longer. Allen would continue to be trapped away from his family during some of the most terrifying events. He would have been very upset if he didn't know what was going on. I did not keep anything from him. I mean, we talked about the price of the house and everyday kinds of problems. And to keep his mind off of what was going on in his jail cell, make him feel like as normal as possible, if you can do that. I mostly did not share what was going on with my kids. I was trying to protect them. I can't remember, it might have been before that, my daughter, who was 25 at the time, living in New York City alone, was diagnosed with breast cancer. And, you know, it's one thing to happen when you're 70, it's another thing when you're 25. That was the, that was the worst moment of all five years, I think, um, is finding that out, because then I felt really split. Do I go to New York and be with my daughter? Or do I stay in Washington and keep working? Of course, I went to New York. <laughs> the problem was that by now, you know, Alan wasn't bringing in any salary. I had no money. I was living on, you know, a hospital salary, which was nothing. And I had no leave left because I kept going to all these meetings on the Hill and whatever. So I could not go see my daughter as often as I wanted. And that was awful. I don't know how I did it. People ask me that all the time. And that's just who I am, I think. I mean, I have my moments, but I'm just, you do what you gotta do kind of person. It was kind of ironic that as we were packing up the house, ready to move, it was Alan's birthday. It was May 2nd. And I got a call from the DC EMS people saying that um, my daughter, my other daughter, had just been involved in an accident in Rock Creek Park and they were taking her to GW emergency room. And uh, <laughs> I lost it again. I mean, I was very scared. I drove out to Rock Creek Park and I saw her in the ambulance and I saw that she was you know, not really badly hurt. What hurt me the most, though, was the reason the accident happened. And she said it was Dad's birthday. I was driving down Rock Creek Park, and I just started to cry. And I missed my curve and head-on hit this van. So obviously it wasn't just me that was um, hurting. My daughter was as well. While not a religious man, Allen stayed true to his family's proud Jewish values, and throughout his imprisonment, he remembered the strength of his family members that had survived the Holocaust. My father had first cousins 
uh, there were six brothers and one sister, and they were all survivors, miraculously. They lost everything. Their parents were killed, their aunts and uncles were killed, their grandparents were killed, their cousins were killed, and yet they survived. And I have the same genes. I'm from the same gene pool. Just knowing about them, they survived something far worse. There's no comparison what they had to endure, no comparison with what I was going through. And so I knew that I was going to get through this. I just knew it. After nearly four and a half years of being imprisoned, there appeared to be some progress in the discussions to bring him home. But then it all seemed to stop. Alan was tired of waiting around and felt he needed to do something to gain more attention himself. In April of 2014, Alan went on a hunger strike. When he decided to go on his hunger strike, I was actually out of the country. I was in Israel visiting my daughter. So I got the news maybe a day after the announcement, and I was furious. I was furious at Alan for doing this before he talked to me about it. I was very scared that that he could die from this because Alan makes up his mind to do something, he, he does it. I was getting impatient. So I decided without telling anybody, my lawyer, sorry, Scott, my wife, sorry, Judy, I'm not telling you, it's not subject to negotiation. I wanna bring attention to my plight that there's a dearth of leadership in both governments and that you guys got to get your act together. Everybody was upset. I went nine days, and I had water, and that was it. And my mother convinced me to end the hunger strike. She was sick herself at that point, and she begged me, please, please eat something. So, uh, you know, out of respect to her, I honored her wish, and I ended the hunger strike. But I did get some attention out of it, Alan got more than some attention out of it. With the help of Judy doing media interviews to play up his hunger strike and her concerns for his health. Over the next few months, Alan's attorney, Scott Gilbert, and several congressmen were working with the State Department to get Alan released as part of major negotiations with Cuba to improve relations between the two countries. I think it was a series of events. We got letters signed by the Senate to the president, lots of congressional delegations, lots of people visited him. Alan was very active in the Jewish community. So one of the directors of one of the Jewish community groups here in DC actually was the one who said, let's get the entire Washington Jewish community out in front of the Cuban embassy and start protesting Alan's incarceration. So. The director of the Jewish community decided, we're going to keep this up until Alan comes home. So every Monday, without fail, rain, snow, whatever, there was a vigil in front of the Cuban embassy. And again, the more and more this happened, the more press there was, people getting involved. On December 15, 2014, Alan was on the phone with Judy. Alan called, and I didn't want to get his hopes up too much in case something did
did happen. But I said, Alan, you're coming home tomorrow. And he said, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and I didn't know what else to tell him. She says, Alan, this is the last time we're going to be speaking this way. I got it. Okay. She thinks I'm coming home. The next day, I was talking to my lawyer. It was the 16th. And Scott says, uh, Alan, tomorrow we're going to get on Air Force One alternative, come to an airfield in Cuba, and take you home. I said, thanks, Scott. See you tomorrow. And he said, no, really, I'm serious. And I said, Scott, you know, I've heard this before. When I see you, I'll believe it. Okay? I don't want to get excited. That's the end of the conversation. They take me back to my cell, because we didn't have a phone in the cell, and my cellmates were gone, and all of their stuff had been cleared out. That's when I knew. I didn't get a chance to say goodbye to my cellmates. So the next morning, I got up early, and they took me to this airfield, and uh, Senator Leahy, Representative Van Hollen, and Senator Flake, my wife, and Scott, my lawyer, were on the plane. We were walking out on the tarmac, and I guess they were coordinating with the flight of the three remaining Cuban Five who were coming back to Cuba, and they had to make sure everything was in sync before they let us get on the plane. So we're waiting, and there's a, you know soldiers holding us up, and he's got a rifle, and Senator Leahy finally said, uh, I'm a senior United States senator. Let's go to the plane. If they're going to shoot, let them shoot. And uh, so just at that moment, the guard got the, the word, it's okay, they can go. And walking on the tarmac to the plane, I see, you know, United States of America on the plane. I still get a little teary when I have that vision. It was just incredible. Allen boarded what's referred to as Baby Air Force One, where he was greeted by Secretary of State John Kerry as they watched President Obama on TV announcing the change in policy between the U.S. and Cuba. That was kind of surreal. All I wanted to do was get the hell out of there and go home and take a shower. And I didn't even know what my home looked like because our home before was a house in Potomac, Maryland, suburb of Washington, and we sold it. We had to. We had to sell it. And my wife had rented an apartment in Washington, D.C., and I was going there for the first time. It was the first day of Hanukkah, the 17th of December. And um, they gave us uh, corned beef sandwiches and potato latkes. And I just was having a terrible time eating the corned beef sandwich because I just had that one thing hanging down. I had to try to nibble on the sandwich. I was having a hard time. All of a sudden, a flight attendant came into the uh, office and he said, excuse me, Mr. Gross. I said, yes, with the sandwich in my hand. Uh, There's a call for you. A call? Who's calling me here? And he said, uh, it's the president. Oh, and I looked at the sandwich and I looked at the flight attendant and I looked at the sandwich and I looked at the flight attendant. And I said, oh, all right. And I put the sandwich down and I went over and I took the phone and I said, hello, this is Alan Gross. And he said, hello, Alan, this is Barack Obama. I said, oh, hello, Mr. President, how are you? He said, well, I'm fine, Alan, how are you? I said, well, I, I was just about to eat a corned beef sandwich. And he said, I thought I heard a little mustard on your lip. Just like that. 
It was just really, really good to hear his voice. It took five long years to bring Alan home. I'm a lucky guy. I don't know how else to put it. I am a very, very lucky person that so many people who didn't know me from Adam would work so hard to to try to get me out. My wife, without question, was the voice and face of my plight. And she was relentless on Capitol Hill with interviews, going to different groups to speak at rallies and things. Uh, She was just incredible. Judy continues her incredible efforts, but for other hostages now, including the 53 Americans currently being detained around the world and volunteering with an organization called Hostage U.S. I had become a different person while Alan was away. I was never a super assertive person. I was just, you know, just Judy. (laughs) But I, those five years being apart just changed me so much because I had to do so many things that I was not familiar with. I had to take so many risks. That was the the silver lining, is that I, I grew tremendously during that time. Alan is retired and grateful to go walking, now in a straight line and not in circles in his cell. And he still enjoys his cigars and drinking whiskey and spending time with his granddaughters. Alan really had a short fuse. If somebody did something that he was angry about, he would get angry. That just disappeared when he came back. He's just a much more mellow guy. At 5 o'clock, he's out there with his Cuban cigar and his uh, (laughs) McAllen 12, and he's... That's what makes him happy. He's also since had the opportunity to see one of his old cellmates again. There was one guy that was with me for about a year, and he was such a great guy. He still is. He's in Florida now. And we made a vow that when we were both free, we would break bread at the Versailles restaurant in Little Havana in Miami. And we did. And it was fantastic. And, of course, there's his incredible wife, Judy, who has a few words to remember. I've told him on more than one occasion that if you ever go somewhere and this happens again, I am not there for you. (laughs) And I'm very serious about that. I am really serious. I've been there. I've done it. It's your own effing fault if you go to some country um, where you're going to get kidnapped. Don't expect me to help. And I mean it. I mean it. You know, I... Fun for five years and that was it. (laughs) Next time on Convicted Across Borders, we hear how one man builds his dream life in Nicaragua only to have it all destroyed for a crime he never committed. So what I had done differently, not get arrested, (laughs) kidnapped by the police and thrown in a Nicaraguan dungeon, I would say. (laughs) I would would, uh, recommend avoiding that experience, if at all possible. Convicted Across Borders was created on behalf of Focus Features by L.A. Times Studios and Treefort and does not reflect the views of the Los Angeles Times, nor does it involve the editorial or reporting staffs of the Los Angeles Times. 
Executive producers are Kelly Garner and Lisa Ammerman. Line producer is Oscar Guido. Written and produced by Matthew Kugler. Casting producer, Julie Burke. Tom Monahan is our senior audio engineer and sound supervisor, with production and editing by Jasper Leak. With additional production help from Tim Schauer, Haley Mandelberg, and Justin Washington. I'm Marcia Clark. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please subscribe, rate us, and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps to raise awareness and get the word out so more people can hear these powerful and real stories. And be sure to watch Focus Features' new film, Stillwater, directed by Tom McCarthy and starring Matt Damon, in theaters July 30th.